Hey y'all, and welcome back to Uplift Fit Nutrition Radio. I'm your host, Lacey Dunn, registered dietitian, here to spread the scientific knowledge in the world of fitness and nutrition. Today, we are going to talk about gut health. So get excited, get ready, and I have an incredible and a knowledgeable guest. So let's jump right in. Hey guys, welcome back to Uplift Fit Nutrition Radio. Today I have an amazing guest. She's very knowledgeable and I'm very stoked to have her on my podcast. Her name is Gabrielle Fundero and I am so stoked to have you on. Thank you so much for taking your time to come and share your knowledge. Thank you for having me. It's great to be on. Of course. Now, do you mind telling my listeners a little bit about who you are, your background, and what essentially got you started into science? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So I actually started, um, I got my bachelor's in exercise, sport, and health ed, and then went on to get my PhD in skeletal muscle physiology and biochem uh, at Virginia Tech. And my area was initially focused on um, muscle wasting associated with a high-fat diet, but I actually found myself working more on my side project, which looked at the uh, potential protective effects of probiotics during high-fat feeding. Um, so that actually became my um, my main project. That That's what I worked on for my dissertation. And uh, a subsequent uh, project that came out of that um, after I I was off on my own in academia, looked at the same thing in humans. Um, And and I became interested in that because while we were studying uh, the role of a high-fat diet in uh, skeletal muscle metabolic dysregulation, we were using something called LPS or lipopolysaccharide in mice to induce inflammation. And I wanted to know why we were using this, um, you know, what the mechanisms were and, and, and what did it model physiologically in humans. And as it turns out, LPS is released from some of our gut bacteria. And so then I became very interested in the relationship between uh, the gut and, and the health of, of skeletal muscle and uh, metabolic function. So from there, um, I ended up uh, working as an assistant professor for about four years uh, in exercise science, and I taught primarily um, sport nutrition and anatomy and physiology, um, and then worked with our intro to exercise science courses and our, um, our honor society, and I had a really a wonderful time there, but in my last year there, I started working with Renaissance periodization as a nutrition coach. And that just really opened up so many doors for me. And I fell in love with coaching um, because it is in, in many ways, it's very similar to, you know, having that sort of educational and mentorship relationship with a student, um, but in just, you know, with, with a different dynamic. And uh, I was able to actually uh, transition out of academia and go into coaching full time. And now um, I have a chapter for Renaissance Periodization's uh, recent Diet Book 2.0 on gut health. Um, and I've been uh, honored to be a podcast guest, uh, a podcast guest on so many podcasts now. Um, and and you know I'm really growing my um, online community and. And I just really appreciate all the people who kind of tune in and, and appreciate, I guess, my sort of pragmatic, skeptical, and, and sarcastic view 
um, of, of the nutrition industry. And uh, yeah, and so this year I, I'm just kind of taken off and sort of traveling all over the world, you know, giving seminars and whatnot on gut health. And, and it was really, um, you know, a lot of people are familiar with, with Dr. Mike Isratel, and he has been such a, a great um, mentor and colleague and has helped connect me with people and is is just consistently laudatory of my knowledge in gut health and you know so it's it's just uh you know preparation met opportunity and here i am wow what a journey and that's so exciting you're you're doing big things right now and that renaissance periodization book i hear is fabulous so i'm excited to get a copy and read it but that's fantastic what is the thing that you're most excited about this year do you have something oh wow um I mean, I, I would say the the ability to travel and speak in other countries. I'm going to Israel um, just at the end of this month. I'll be in the UK in May. I'll be in Australia in June. Um, uh, there's another one that hasn't been announced yet, but that'll be in, in September. Um, so it's just, you know, being able to connect with these people that I, I just, I look up to so much and, and to be able to speak on, a, on the platform with them and to really contribute um, to the field because that's part of my my vision and and my mission is to make an impact and you know be a a strong um, female voice as well in the field to to illustrate that you know it's it doesn't you know the the panel of speakers is is even better if it's really diverse. Oh yeah, there, there 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 are always men, and it's like, where are the women? Come on, ladies, we need you in science. I see a lot more like lady doctors, but still, in regards to research, there's there's a lot of males. So good for you oh, yeah. sticking out yep. and being ahead and empowering us women. Oh, I'm that's 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 part of my goal. Yeah, absolutely. Like I I want to show that you know we can be up there on these panels with everyone else. All the you know there are pro- prolific female researchers and excellent communicators and you know we can speak about more even more than just you know more than just women's health I mean that is probably an an area that I am would say I have a lot of room to learn about and and you know there are things other things that I I really want to speak about and it's a super important aspect but you know to show that we can talk about a vast array of things of training modalities and nutrition and then everything else too. That's awesome. Well, thank you for that. Um, And I'm very excited to talk about gut health with you. So I really want to start talking about the gut microbiome. So as my listeners know, you know, we've done a previous podcast on the gut microbiome and little things in regards to, you know, what can affect your gut microbiome, stress, sleep, what you eat, um, artificial sweeteners, all this stuff. Um, There's a lot of things, but I know you are more of like an expert on the gut, so I would love if you could tell my listeners, essentially, what are the uh, key components to having a healthy gut microbiome? How can they have a healthy gut microbiome? Yeah. Well, what are I, the predispositions I, to having a healthy gut? Yeah, I love that question. I actually... Um, I've been so inspired lately. I've been posting a lot more, I think more than I ever have. And so I'm kind of brainstorming the ways that I'd like to present um, my position on on gut health. And I view it as 
a spectrum and and in much the same way that you know a lot of people are trying to find reasons why they might not be able to lose weight or they have mm-hmm. to do something really you know special for their bodies or eat a special diet and and the research really on almost I would say you know I, I'm not dogmatic about things but, but unequivocally you you really need just a caloric deficit and most people don't have any special considerations they're healthy individuals and you know by moving more and eating less uh, you know, and creating a, cal- a caloric deficit, they lose weight. And gut health really is, in most cases, the same way in that if you are a healthy individual of normal body weight and you exercise regularly and you eat plants regularly, you probably don't have a lot of special considerations that you need to make. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, if you do have, you know, a, a diagnosed uh, uh, inflammatory bowel disease or, uh, celiac disease or known, um, you know, inborn errors of metabolism and enzyme deficiencies, then yeah, absolutely. You have special considerations. And the recommendations that I would make for people who have an actual pathology would be very different from someone who is just a, you know, a recreational exerciser and general healthy person. Um, but ironically sort of Everyone thinks that they that everyone needs to do the same thing and be really rigorous and and um, you know regimented about their gut health. But what what the research really shows is that in most cases, people who uh, who undergo interventions, you know, whether it's diet primarily, um, there's really almost no exercise interventions. But the gut is very dynamic and it's really quite resilient to to big changes. So I think that's one key thing to realize is that the primary determinants of what your gut will look like really are your gender, your age, and your geographic location. Your habitual diet does also shape that. But when we look at these you know, dietary intervention studies where we make big changes in diets, in some cases we actually don't see a huge response in the microbiome um, as a whole. We, we may see changes in certain species, um, but it's, it's transient. So what you do, um, you know, if you want to go on like a five day, uh, bender of, you know, eating a a lot of junk food and drinking alcohol and whatnot. Yeah. You would see some, some changes to certain species of bacteria, but then once you return to your habitual diet, it would really go back to the way it was before. Oh, wow. That's very interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's been illustrated with um, antibiotic use as well. And so I would say the the secondary determinant of um, what your microbial profile will look like or how it will change in response to these interventions is how diverse it is uh, to begin with. So a more diverse microbiome, so that means we have a lot of species and they're fairly evenly represented in terms of, you know, mostly uh, good or neutral bacteria and a few of those pathogenic bacteria, we actually do need those in there, that if you have a diverse microbiome, it's really just going to bounce back. And so you don't need to do really anything spectacular to it. Um, it's really just, you know, you we, we realize we've evolved, we've co-evolved with these bacteria um, for for longer than we can, you know, even, even really conceptualize. And so they have their own ecosystem, they communicate with one another, each bacteria, they have their own immune system, just like we do, they control uh, growth on their own of, of their within their own community. 
um, per perhaps even more so than we can control, you know, with diet and exercise and things like that. So when we look at the, you know, percent um, uh, contribution of things in our in our lifestyle and our diet and whatnot, it looks like about 60% of our biome is just we can't do much about it. That's just what we have and that's it. And maybe up to 40% would be diet and exercise. But those are based on just really a couple of studies where people have done regression analysis and said, you know, like, oh, 20% uh, of microbial diversity could be explained by differences in cardiovascular fitness. So people who are more fit generally have uh, more diverse microbiome versus people who are less fit based on cardiovascular fitness. Now, in the world of, of resistance training, we really know nothing. Um, so so there are these just huge deficits of knowledge. And so that's part of the reason why, you know, we can't make um, strong recommendations about what's the best thing to do for gut health because, well, we don't know really what a healthy gut microbiome looks like in terms of specific profile. We know that, yes, diversity is good. And so we want a lot of different species and we want um, the right amounts of them. But if you have too many, that's also problematic. If you have them in the wrong place in your gut, that can be problematic. And um, and so it, it's just, you know, becomes so, mm, it, we make such big extrapolations by making these recommendations based on, on really just emerging information. Because the, the, the basis that we have for what constitutes a healthy microbiome um, is largely from uh, fecal samples that are collected from about 240 individuals as part of the Human Microbiome Project. Um, and fe and that, that has its own limitations because fecal, uh, the fecal microbiome is actually different from the intestinal mm -hmm. microbiome. So, you know, even from there, we have to make extrapolations. And then when we look at, at mouse studies, um, there are really, really intricate, well-designed mouse studies that show uh, mechanisms and we can really almost determine causation from these mouse studies. But the digestive tracts of mice and the immune systems of mice are different from humans. And even when we look at, at mice that come from different labs, we've got Jackson Labs is a big uh, producer of, of research mice. The, the mice actually have different microbiomes depending on which lab they're coming from. And so of course, when you're looking at microbiome research, that that makes a huge difference. So, so that's a very, very long answer to say that um, I don't think we know enough to say that there's a protocol for creating a healthy gut. And that what we look at is correlation in that you know, I, I can say with, with good confidence that it's good to eat a diet that's rich in plant foods because we know fiber is very important and that it's good to exercise regularly, um, but not to overtrain because that can be immunosuppressive. And that if you are, like I said, of a normal uh, body weight and you know, you're exercising regularly and, and eating a diverse diet, that you probably don't have to do much of anything. And that if we go on the other end of the spectrum, you know, you're going to be working with with clinicians and things like that to keep, uh, you know, health in order and, and you probably will have special dietary considerations. Now, if you're somewhere in the middle, which a lot of people are, and they have some gastrointestinal um, issues, unidentified perhaps food sensitivities and things like that, a lot of people will, you know, recommend a probiotic. But probiotics 
effects are strain specific. So we can't say that there is just one probiotic that will uh, alleviate all of your symptoms. Mm -hmm. Uh, So usually I recommend that um, there's a really cool website and you have to be very specific because if you type in the wrong thing, it'll send you to the wrong website, but I can send you this link too. But the usprobioticguide.com, which is it sounds like it's a .com. It sounds like it would be kind of a weird website, but it's actually really helpful because it's just um, a group of, of researchers have sort of curated this website um, that it is, it's a consortium of uh, uh, different probiotics that, that you can sort by what they've been shown to um, alleviate in the literature. So for example, uh, antibiotic associated diarrhea or traveler's diarrhea or IBS And then you can also sort it by the strength of evidence. And and so from there, you can find a probiotic that that is suited to your needs. And, um, you know, aside from that, what we can, we can't say that there's anything really that's, you know, strongly supported by by the evidence in terms of um, things that you can take or special things that you can do. Uh, Because really everything is just, is, is just correlation. Yeah, that's very interesting. I definitely need to get on that website. So thank you for letting me know about that. Um, I know there are different probiotics that are tailored to different individuals, whether that be um, there's even male specific, there are female specific in regards to decreasing the amount of UTIs. So overall, you're saying that taking a probiotic for a specific cause, if it's proven effective, would be beneficial. Yes, yeah. Um, and I would say, you know, we can't necessarily say proven effective yet in, in terms, because May. part of the problem is, you know, we have, so we may have like a big, a breadth of, of research, you know, like that, uh, this one probiotic strain has been used once to treat a few different things, mm-hmm. but perhaps hasn't been replicated very well. And when we, when we have probiotics that are geared towards, you know, males versus females, some of that is um, mirroring the difference that that occurs natively, that that, that we naturally have a different um, microbiome in males versus females uh, without any sort of dietary intervention or anything like that. There's a great deal of overlap, but we do have some differences. Or they're gearing towards um, bacteria that would be part of the vaginal microbiome, um, which, you know, certainly you can have some some transfer there, although ideally you don't, and that the vaginal microbiome is is significantly different from the fecal or um, or or colorectal uh, area microbiomes. So, um, but that in that case, they would have more lactobacillus and things like that because that's usually because the the vaginal uh, microbiota are happier in, a, in an acidic environment. So that's usually what they're gearing it towards. You're going to have more lactobacillus probably in that probiotic strain. Um, versus what you would have in one that's made for men. Uh, not to say that, you know, that th- they've been proven super effective for um, reducing things like BV and whatnot. But I have seen, um, you know, some, some emerging literature uh, that that can be protective um, and even, you know, in, in the role of oral contraceptives versus, um, you know, uh, non-hormonal IUDs and things like that. 
Interesting. Mm-hmm. I would love to hear your thoughts on fermented foods and prebiotics and mm-hmm. natural probiotics because they are all the rage these days and people get and people get so hung up on them and think yeah. that they have to incorporate X amount of this in their day. I know I had um I had another guy on my podcast. It's going to be up after yours, but he's going to talk about mm-hmm. um you know, he, he talks about a lot of fermented foods and adding in X amount. And I was, you know what, I was on the on the fence. I was like, I'm not so sure that's exactly what I would agree with. But um, I want to know about your thoughts on incorporating all this stuff into the daily diet. Because I know, in my opinion, you can add way too much. And it can be, yeah. it's not necessary for everybody to eat fermented foods. It's, it's just not, in my opinion. So I would love your opinion. Okay. Um, but yeah, I agree with, um, the fact that, you know, not everyone needs to, uh, include fermented foods in their diet. And when we look at the, you know, potential influence or recommendations of, you know, how much, uh, people need to eat, like in the, the recent, um, article that came out of, I believe it was the American gut project and they recommended that, you know, 30 different plants was the, that's, that's what everyone needs to be eating. It's not that, you know, that number is 100% accurate and that if you eat less than that, you're not going to have any beneficial, any beneficial effects. Um, just like, you know, if you eat more than that, it's not necessarily going to be better. Um, it's just that, you know, the, whatever, we use these statistics co- to kind of come up with like a best range. Um, and so I've seen, you know, when we look at effect sizes in, in recommendations for vegetables and things like that, like 500 to 800 grams of vegetables per day, uh, seems to best fit the model of how much you need to eat to get, uh, you know, a significant difference in, in health effect. Um, so that's probably, you know, where people are kind of coming up with the amount of, you know, fermented foods that you need to eat or just saying, okay, in this study, they found that, you know, 500 mils of a cultured milk beverage, uh, like a kefir or something had an effect. Um, so we, we assume from that, that, you know, 500 mils would be the effective dose. Um, but that being said, when we think about, you know, fermented foods and prebiotics and whatnot, most of us are eating prebiotics. We're not necessarily eating a prebiotic supplement, but prebiotics are just fermentable fibers and fermentable fibers, really soluble fibers in general are readily fermentable. And so they're, they're correlated with increases in beneficial bacteria like bifidobacterium is a big one that most people are familiar with. So you don't have to have a prebiotic supplement if you're eating a lot of soluble fiber, if you're eating whole grains and legumes and fruits and vegetables and things like that, you're going to have a mix of both soluble and insoluble fiber. Um, So that's really, you know, that gets to the idea of having a plant-centric diet, which is something that I promote quite a lot. Not, Not vegan or vegetarian unless someone wants to do that but just eating plants at every meal. Um, And then in terms of the fermented food products, if you do have a fermented food that has uh, probiotic bacteria in it, that's great. You don't necessarily know what the the count of bacteria will be in that food. So, you know, in most cases, it's going to be less concentrated than one you're going to have um, in a probiotic supplement. So you actually might run into less risk of, of having, you know, too many bacteria. And I say that in, in sort of a, you know, what's 
what's too many? <laughs> well, some people who are taking certain medications that change the acidity of the stomach and duodenum, which is part of the small intestine that's, that's in closest proximity to the stomach, they're at increased risk of uh, intestinal, uh, a small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, it, it appears based on the literature. Because we're changing the pH there and, and because we're making it less acidic, more bacteria can take up residence there. We don't necessarily want um, bacteria that are supposed to be in the large intestine hanging out in the small intestine and producing a bunch of gas and things like that that we can't pass as easily. Mm -hmm. um, so, so by eating fermented foods and prebiotic foods, really we're, we're sort of putting things uh, in the right amounts where they need to be because that fiber will pass through the small, the stomach and small intestine pretty much undigested and then it ends up in the large intestine and that's where we have those beneficial bacteria that are going to ferment it, things like short chain fatty acids which are beneficial to us and now we don't have to worry about the potential for, you know, those probiotic bacteria to, to take up residence in our small intestine. Um, which is, you know, that that's sort of just one of the risks that perhaps people aren't necessarily familiar with. Um, and, and, and the other thing is, you know, if you're thinking about taking a probiotic, there's not necessarily evidence that they have to uh, enrich the gut. And really, they probably don't. They probably pass through um, and may or may not have an effect on their way through the gut. Uh, so that's another thing to keep in mind, that some people are actually resistant to enrichment by uh, probiotic bacteria. Uh, and it seems that people who have a more diverse microbiome don't, don't seem to um, be enriched as easily by probiotic bacteria. But that's fine, because if you have a diverse microbiome already, you don't really need that stuff. Uh, and then if, you know, if you're looking at fermented foods, the only thing I would uh, caution people about is that if you're, if you're getting something that has been um, fermented or pickled or something, but then has been pasteurized, it's not going to contain um, significant numbers of, of beneficial bacteria. Yeah, also, been killed off. Yeah, exactly. Um, if you are taking in something that has not been pasteurized, that has been fermented or cultured, um, a lot of people are kind of on raw milk. Just be aware that not all of the bacteria that grow in those conditions are going to be beneficial. Um, you know, there's a really there's a, a there's a huge risk of listeria, um, which is a very harmful pathogenic bacteria um, that actually hangs out in cold environments. So, like even if you heat the cold, it's totally fine with that. Um, so just keeping those things in mind, uh, and that. For a bacteria to be considered probiotic, it has to have shown a beneficial effect. So, so not all bacteria um, can be that that grow in these cultured foods can be considered even probiotic. And when we are talking about, you know, some like the dirt, the dirt bacteria and things like that, there are a bunch of probiotics that were like, oh, they're they're spore forming, and so they, you know, might have a beneficial effect. They don't have to be alive; they can leave spores and. And that will, you know, uh, result in bacterial growth. And well, you know, bacteria are are really kind of picky, and they have specific niches. And so, bacteria that grow well outside of the human body may not then grow well inside of the human body. So we can't, you know, be sure that these bacteria that are, you know, dirt associated and whatnot are going to have any effect in the gut, because our own bacteria, our gut bacteria 
they're pretty gnarly and they kill each other off like you wouldn't believe. So it's like, just because you're eating this stuff does not mean it's going to survive and like make any difference. Oh, thank you for that. Very, very, very enlightening information for some people, especially <laughs> those that are have been so stuck on the fermented foods for so long and um, eating this for this. And so thank you so much for describing that. I do want to get into a controversial topic if you're okay with yeah. that. And that yeah. is artificial sweeteners and their impact on gut health, which mm. then impacts body composition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because I know this is something I hear all the time. Like if I have, if I have this diet soda, I'm going to gain weight, but not because of the calories. Oh Lord. Sorry. My cat is going insane. Oh, um, that's okay. <laughs> but because of um, the alterations in my gut microbiota. So mm-hmm. wanted to get your expertise. Um, I love that question, and especially that you that you linked it to body composition. Um, when you look at the really the epi- and really, I will say even with randomized control trials, but even you know the epidemiological studies where we look at with large populations, looking at people over time, replacing sugar sweetened beverages with either artificially sweetened, you know, or obviously non caloric like water and things like that. But when we're looking at replacing sugar sweetened beverages, it does improve body composition. It does lead to weight loss. Even though, yes, we're adding artificial sweeteners, we cannot defy the laws of thermodynamics and then say that, you know, weight loss becomes impossible or that, you know, even though we're eating less and we have a caloric deficit, we can't lose weight. Um, That's simply not the case. It's just not how it plays out in real life. When we look at it at the uh, intervention level, and we look at how people respond and how their guts respond to artificial sweeteners. There is some evidence that a small proportion of people will see some level of metabolic dysregulation in the form of changes in insulin sensitivity and will see changes in the microbiome, but that's because the microbiome changes in response, you know, certain taxa or certain species of bacteria change in response to dietary changes. And so if you are reducing your sugar intake, well, now you're reducing a a fuel source for those bacteria. Some of these artificial sweeteners are, uh, have a greater influence on bacteria, perhaps because they are actually, can be metabolized um, because, you know, uh, in the case of um, uh, like aspartame, you know, we're looking at, it's made of amino acids um, Splenda or sucralose is, is very, very similar to sucrose. Uh, so it could have an effect, certainly. But the real, you know, does that really matter in the grand scheme of things? So if you're looking at, you know, maybe, um, you know, there was a, a recent uh, 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 RCT that came out and they assumed or they estimated that about, you know, one in 10 people would see some change in insulin signaling in response to um, regular consumption of uh, artificial sweeteners or about uh, with with using saccharin um, maybe about a third of people had any change to the microbiome but it didn't lead to anything so I think it's important to realize that just because we may see changes in specific species in the micro of of micro of of, uh, microorganisms that that doesn't mean that as a whole our, 
our whole microbial ecosystem has been drastically affected. Uh, because I mean, part of it is that, you know, we there realize there are, you know, thousands of species that we're looking at in there and they're all interacting with each other. They're interacting with our immune system. They're interacting with our, our dietary components. So it's even very difficult to say, you know, for sure. Oh yeah. The artificial sweeteners definitely had the effect and that, and they were a direct influence. And then it's also important to know, to look at, you know, how does that play out? when it actually comes to, you know, weight gain and body comp, well, it actually doesn't really seem to do anything uh, at worst. And at best, it actually does lead to weight loss because we're reducing our caloric intake. And when we look at, you know, one, one of the best, like I mentioned earlier, one of the best ways that we can sort of, you know, think about maintaining gut health is to maintain um, yeah, healthy body weight and, and control adiposity. So, you know, you weigh the pros and cons of, you know, is using an artificial sweetener from time to time helping me control my caloric intake? Okay, that benefit is much greater than, you know, the potential for maybe like, you know, a 10% chance of it modifying insulin signaling a little bit. But even if we do modify insulin signaling a little bit, that doesn't make it impossible to lose weight either. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I know people get so hung up on it. And I'm like, really, it's it's going to probably benefit you to have um, the diet drink versus the high caloric drink. Um, and then of course, yes. there's the other side of people that are like, Oh, I can't have the diet drink. But I can go have this kombucha that has extra calories and carbohydrates in it. And I'm like, Oh, God, facepalm. Um, yeah. Or the yeah, the suja juice. That's like, I mean, you know, okay, it's juice. It's fine. I'm not going to like demonize juice or fruit or anything like that. But like those things have, you know, 40 grams of sugar in one bottle. Um, and it's, it's just very calorically dense and people don't realize that still counts. You know, these are, unless something is, you know, hundred percent juice, um, we generally are counting things that are like blends and concentrates and things like that, whatever additives, you know, that could still be considered along the lines of a sugar sweetened beverage. They're just very calorically dense. And Mm -hmm. if, we have, you know, and if you're if you're trying to balance, you know, having a nutrient dense diet, um, and not necessarily keeping track of calories, because not everyone needs to do that. But those are ways that you know you sort of get an increase without necessarily realizing it, or having the same satiety signals in response to the caloric load that you're getting. Exactly. Um, I know a lot of people will think smoothies are easy to do, juices are easy to do, and then they're like, oh, why am I so hungry all the time? Well, because that's not filling at all. And it's just carbohydrates, so you're just spiking your insulin and your blood sugar and then creating a drop, making you even more hungry again. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. So very common. Um, I The next thing I wanted to ask you is Uh another controversial topic. and (laughs) Yeah. That is in regard, and that this is just because it's been stuck in my my mind, and I've been seeing it everywhere. And I want you to mm-hmm. tell the science about celery juice. Oh, <laughs> oh gosh, um, oh man, I I had a poor client who was doing the celery juice thing, and man, she had some really bad gastrointestinal issues going on, and. I said, you know, it does not sound, and and she thought that it was causing a detox, and I I had to explain, celery juice does not detoxify our our bodies, and and that detoxification is something that occurs in a human body, but it happens via enzyme function, Um, that happens in the liver, Um, so we have 
enzymes that remove toxins like the or detoxify them, make them inactive, like that LPS that I mentioned earlier. Uh, we have enzymes that scavenge free radicals and, and deal with that with oxidative stress. And obviously, of course, we also excrete toxins um, in our urine, in our feces. So we don't, there, there's no, um, there's really no physiological mechanism by which celery juice could even cause detoxification. But as it turned out, it was just that the, they, they were eating some chicken that was off. And so they were just, they had food poisoning. Oh, no. Um, but I'm really glad that, you know, yeah, we figured that out because I said, oh, no, if, if you were having severe diarrhea multiple times a day, that's, that is not, it's either, you know, the celery juice could be causing that, which is not what we want, or you're eating something that's um, up, upset your, your system there. And uh, yeah, so figured that one out. Um, but yeah, I've been seeing this quite often. Um, so yeah, and, and when you go to the, I think there's there's a an Instagram account that I think really has been pushing this a lot, and um, really just uses completely made up words, science that it's not science. I shouldn't say that. Um, just fairy tales and made up words, but um, they're they're you know sciencey sounding words, I guess. And uh, what's probably happening is that people are either increasing their water intake because celery is primarily celery is primarily water and if you are juicing the celery um, you're not having any of the fiber with it so celery is pretty much water and then cellulose which is um, an insoluble plant fiber so it's not even really like the bacteria aren't really even gonna have any fun with it it really just helps create bulk in the stool which is still good but you're not getting the fiber if you're just doing the juice but if you are replacing say your morning coffee um, or whatever, you know, if you were maybe not eating a, a breakfast that was like really nutrient dense and made you feel good and you're replacing that with a big glass of water, you're increasing your hydration. And if you're doing that multiple times a day, you're increasing your hydration and that can help make you feel good. And so there's nothing wrong with increasing your intake of celery juice, but it's not going to detoxify. Um, there is no way for your diet to significantly affect your blood pH your blood pH has to be controlled within a very narrow window. And if you do become more uh, alkaline or more acidic, that, that causes your body's enzymes no, to no longer function. And that leads to death, of course. So um, unless you have a disease that causes acidosis or alkalosis, um, you're going to maintain a pH of about 7.4. And, and your diet is not going to influence that. Now, of course, uh, in your intestines, that's actually external to your body. We, we do have a very different pH along the digestive tract than what we have in the blood. But even that is going to be controlled as well. So the celery juice is not going to do anything to your pH. It's not going to detoxify you. Um, it's really not going to do anything except for, you know, increase your water intake. And it's really unfortunate that, that people will um, prey on people's just, you know, curiosity or lack of awareness um and and try to capitalize on that and you know make money and and it's just it's frustrating because people are just kind of they, they they're confused they don't know who they can trust um and and that guy is not one of the people you can trust no no medical medium yes yeah. that's who it was i couldn't think of his name yep Yes, he is definitely on the list of people not to trust, and so is Goop. I don't know who owns Goop. Oh, do you know Gwyneth Paltrow? Oh, okay. Yes, well, don't Gwyneth trust Paltrow. her. Yes, 
Yes, don't put parsley or wasp nests or jade eggs or steam in your vagina. You don't oh need to do any God, of those I things. didn't know that was a thing she did. Yes, yes. She promotes all of these things. It's oh pretty Oh, God. Whew. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Yeah, <laughs> guys. If somebody, most of the time, if somebody says this thing is going to cure X, then there is a problem and you probably shouldn't trust them. Exactly. Yeah, I, I, I'm actually inspired. I'm going to be making a flow chart soon on um, how to determine whether a claim or supplement is um, likely bogus. And one of the first things is like, you know, you have to determine whether it tries to defy, tries to defy the law of thermodynamics of physics, you know, like energy balance. And then the next thing is, does it adhere to principles of human physiology? <laughs> like those are some big things, but it's just, you know, I think part of it is that human physiology is complex and it's nuanced. And sometimes things sound accurate in theory and the theories make sense, but then in practice, they don't pan out. Um, and, and so when someone says like, you know, oh, because this contains these vitamins and minerals, it'll do X, Y, and Z in your body. There's a disconnect between the theory and then the actual reality of what's really happening. Mm -hmm. That's a very, very important, important point. Something that a lot of people forget about. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. You took those um, very controversial topics with ease. So thank you so much for going <laughs> over that. Um, and then my last question is, what would be the top tips that you have for maintaining a healthy lifestyle? Ooh, healthy lifestyle. I like that. Um, part of one of my upcoming talks, um, because I, I was really, you know, I, I had all, I felt like they had a lot of the technical background and I wanted to learn more about actual, um, coaching styles because I realized very quickly that weight management is not really about calorie management, just like money management isn't just about managing a bank account. It's yes. about your behaviors around money. So weight management is about your behaviors. It's about behavior and thought management. And so if you are having difficulty, um, you know, managing your weight or sticking to a healthy lifestyle, it's not necessarily a lack of willpower. It's that your, your thoughts and behaviors and environment, these things are not culminating in a way that is supportive of the lifestyle that you necessarily want to be living. So I think one of the best, um, one of the most important tips, one of the things that I encourage people to start with is to find your why. So who is, so if you wanna make a change, who is that change going to affect? How? How is it going to affect them? And then years from now, why will or how will your life be different because of this change? And then you can start internalizing the changes and, and making that motivation for change more intrinsic so where it becomes really meaningful for you. Because however, whatever you want to do is not going to stick until you've really internalized for, you know, like this is why it's so important. I want to be a role model for my kids or I want to be around to you know, um, be with my spouse longer, things like that. So find your why and that will help you stick to the lifestyle. And then in terms of um, making things a little bit easier for yourself, um, trying to um, manage goals in, 
in a way that makes them more bite-sized. So you have like a really long-term goal of losing a large amount of weight or, you know, a new PR or something like that. Focusing on sort of your process goals. So what are you going to do day to day to get you to that end goal? And you can celebrate those because the more that you celebrate your success, the more you build up your confidence and what we call self-efficacy, which is sort of situational self-confidence that yes, you can do this every day. You can do the things. And at the end of, you know, three months or whatever, you will reach that point. And then um, I, I think the third thing would be to find ways that help you manage um, stress and sleep because those are two that can really reduce your level of self-control or willpower. Um, you know, if you're really tired or you're really stressed, you may feel like you don't have time to do X, Y, and Z. So if you can find ways to, um, you know, get into a good sleep habit, um, have good sleep hygiene, and then whatever reduces your stress levels, meditation, mindfulness, you know, taking time for yourself. I really encourage people to think of it in the same way that, you know, a flight attendant tells you to apply your own oxygen mask first. You have to take care of yourself first before you can take care of everyone else, you know, in the best way possible. Amen to that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it was really not, not a lot to do with specific nutrition things because really, I mean, it's about behavior change and thought change. Oh yeah. It's very powerful. And people forget to, you know, they go after fitness, they go after nutrition and they forget to feed their mind and make sure that their environment is feeding them with something that is going to uplift and encourage them and help them be their better selves. People forget about that. So it's very, very important to create that behavioral change to make sure you have a healthy mindset and you're fueling your mindset and um, your overall health will drastically change if you do that. Yep, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been an excellent time and it's been a pleasure to speak with you. If you could tell my listeners where they can find you, follow you, um, look at all your amazing Instagram posts or your (laughs) stories or look up the Renaissance periodization book, that would be fantastic. And I'll make sure I link everything in the description below as well. Awesome. Um, Yeah, so they can find me on Instagram. I'm vitamin PhD. Um, Same thing on Facebook. Uh, So I have a page there as well. Um, And uh, I am also I have a blog that I don't update regularly enough because I make all my two long posts on Instagram, but that's vitaminphdnutrition.com. And then they can also find me on the Renaissance Periodization website. Uh, Like you mentioned, we have our RP Diet Book 2.0 that's available for purchase there. Um, And I'm actually also um, writing another book that's going to be completely on on gut health and the relationship between the microbiome and and multiple facets of human health and physiology. So that'll be coming up probably maybe beginning of next year, um, end of this year, uh, because I've got quite quite a few things going on. But I I do encourage people to go to uh, nphdnutrition.com and check out Um, the podcast that I have there and also um, tickets to upcoming events and seminars because I'll be traveling all over and hope to, you know, meet, meet some of my listeners. Well, heck yeah. If you come to Houston, let me know. Okay. I mean, you know what? I'm so mobile. Like I can just go to really any state that I want. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, I'm so excited for you. I want to explore. That's exciting. And you'll get to see a bunch of different places, meet a lot of people and continuing spreading your message, which I'm very, very thankful for. So thank you so much again for your time. And I hope you have such a fantastic night. Thank you. You too. All right. Bye.
Bye.